Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> why do I want to? Well, we're starting a show. I guess that's why that song oh, came right. to my mind. Right at the beginning of a show we used to watch as kids. Some of our listeners, but only a very few, wow. probably will know I about didn't that. Even, it didn't even dawn on me that some of our listeners might not even know that oh, song. Most of them don't, my love. Really? <laughs> yeah. All right. If you don't know what I just sang. <laughs> You have to let me know so that I can realize how old I am. Or the other thing, they might know it from a cartoon called yeah. Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. They they use that. Oh. Yeah. But but hasn't it I mean, Mr. Rogers is kind of a cultural phenomenon even uh, for well. even if you weren't a kid in the seventies, no? Not so sure. I don't know. Well, it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Thank you for being with us today, wherever your neighborhood is, all around this beautiful planet Earth. Speaking of this beautiful planet Earth, I'm going to the other side of it in just a few days. I'm headed off to New Zealand. Never been to New Zealand before. Yeah. And then Australia. So if you are actually on the, by the time this podcast airs, I will have already done the event. Yeah, I've never, I've, I love going to new places. Mm -hmm. I've never been to New Zealand, so I'm kind of excited about that. But I'm sad to be leaving you, Wendy. Thank you for your commitment to this work that I do that takes me around the world. Very grateful to you, my love. Oh, you're welcome. It is pretty awesome. It also shows some difference about our personalities because you have that personality that can just feel the pull of the hearts of people all over the earth and go reply to that pull mm. of their hearts in a way that is so different from mine where I feel kind of pulled by whatever's very close to me and yeah. you have this pull, you know, much farther away. So yeah, I reflect different. on that actually a lot that your, your attention is very much right here, concentrated, very focused in the close up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Concentrated right here with our kids. And obviously I have that focus too, but I also have this, this sense of a calling to go out. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, I mean, the genitalia kind of tell the story, don't they? <laughs> they do. It's theology of the body. Yes. Yes. But I do think there's also just sort of personality, personality. differences and, and right. God's plan differences. If that sounded weird to people that I was mentioning genitalia and this whole thing, the point, <laughs> the point I'm making is that our bodies tell a story and man's genitals are on the outside, like he's, he's outward directed and a woman's genitals are on the inside. The man generates life outside himself. The woman generates life inside herself, and that's just—that's not just a biological um, quirk or something. That—that that says something about female and male orientations and personalities mm. and gifts and psychological mysteries. And anyway, that I didn't is necessarily good. want to go down that road, but no, I did. No, I love it. It's all true and beautiful. Thanks for sharing it. And you want to update us about anything with the Institute going on? Yeah, I want to point people to an online course we're having in February called Catholic Sexual Ethics, taught by Father Joseph Koopman. He is a moral theologian in the Archdiocese of Cleveland, Ohio. He is an excellent, excellent teacher. I sat in on the course when we recorded it. 
And yeah, it was really, he was really, really well done. We used to have Dr. John Haas teach our Catholic sexual ethics course, but he retired from teaching and we recruited Father Joseph Koopman. He came highly recommended and he's really superb. He will give you the tools to understand in depth the church's moral teaching. He grounds it in a proper anthropology. He gets into all the specific questions. It, has, it will be an invaluable course for you to understand your Catholic faith more deeply, to understand the logic of the Catholic t Church's teaching, and to be able to explain it to others. So can't highly, can't highly, can't recommend it more highly is what I was trying to say. Mm. And it finally came out of my mouth. I, I did not take the course when you took it, but I remember the beautiful gift it was to many of the students. I remember some conversations with the students and how inspiring it was for them to learn moral teachings from such a compassionate and life-giving perspective that it wasn't equipping them to be judgmental or holier than thou, but right. quite the opposite, to enter into the story of others and, you know, ex experience that encounter with the one who loves us. That's Yeah, that's one of the things I love about Father Koopman's teaching style, the stories he brings, the, uh, the practical examples and explanations he offers. That well, You're right, Wendy, that was particularly helpful to the students. So yeah. please check the link mm -hmm. in your show notes and consider attending that online course in February. Yeah. Let's start with a question now. All righty. This is from a patron named Ava. Ava, thank you so much for your monthly support of the work we do here. So grateful to you. Ava says, my husband and I are raising three children under the age of four. We try to live a Catholic life, but during this time, we struggle with NFP because our youngest is only eight months old. My cycle is a mess and my fertile days are not clear. We are both exhausted and the fear of getting pregnant at this stage of life is very big. My husband has a really hard time accepting that I'm strictly against using contraception and we barely have sex. This causes a lot of tension in our marriage. Any advice? Bless you, Ava. Bless you. You you are in a situation that not a few wives find themselves when their husbands are not convicted about the church's teaching. And I think, Ava, the most important thing you can be doing for your husband is offering this suffering that you are going through as a prayer for him. There is a need for conversion in your husband's heart. And as I say that, I'm reminded of a line in the theology of the body that I want to hold out to you as uh, hope for where your husband's heart can land as he, as he journeys and as your prayers will be effective in bringing about, I mean, I can't promise they're going to be effective in this life. I don't know your husband. I don't know what his real blocks are. Uh, he could be adamantly opposed to the church's teaching here for the rest of his life. I pray that's not the case. But your prayers offered for your husband 
will bear fruit, whether it's here or in the next life or whatever. This is when we pray in accord with the Lord's will, and it is certainly the Lord's will that your husband embrace the church's teaching and learn how to love you more authentically and with a reverence for the gift of your fertility. Those prayers will bear fruit. Uh, so hold that close to your heart and, and take comfort there. But this is the line I was reminded of from John Paul's Theology of the Body. He says, when we have a proper understanding of the dignity of the body, and when we are filled with the gift of reverence for the beautiful, glorious mystery that our bodies reveal, that our fertility reveals, that the marital embrace participates in, when we realize what John Paul II calls the language of the body, that our bodies in the very act of sexual intercourse, in giving forth the seed of the husband and the wife opening to receive that and surrendering those generative powers to the Lord and giver of life for whatever his will might be, right? When we understand the language there that we are proclaiming with our bodies a great mystery, we have, John Paul II says, a salvific fear of ever violating or degrading what bears in itself the sacramental mystery of creation and redemption. This is what spouses are entering into. It's what they're meant to be entering into. That activation of the generative function, which happens in sexual intercourse, is a physical participation and representation, John Paul II tells us, of the very power of creation and redemption. Right? Think, think of that. It, 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 we are participating in the very creative power of God, and we're participating in the very redemptive power of God. But when we choose to render the act sterile ourselves, when we personally and willfully rob the sexual act of its procreative potential, we're no longer participating in that sacramental mystery. In fact, it becomes an anti-sacrament. Rather than being a sacred representation of the mystery of creation and redemption, it becomes a, a, a blasphemous mockery of creation and redemption. Your husband clearly does not understand that. He doesn't see that. That's not his, as Jesus says, we look but we do not see, right? There's a certain blindness here. Your husband doesn't understand that, doesn't see that. But that's the prayer that I would invite you to pray, that your husband's eyes would be opened to how his body and your body reveal this sacred, holy, beautiful mystery. And that in seeing that mystery, your husband would come to reverence it with, with awe, with wonder. What your husband is running up against is really concupiscence, right? And concupiscence is the disordering of our sexual desire. You think about it from, from this perspective. Contraception was not invented to prevent pregnancy. 
we already had a 100% safe, 100% reliable way of doing that. It's called abstinence, right? Contraception was invented so we wouldn't have to abstain. But let's go deeper here into the reality there. I have asked this question of women around the world for the last 30 years. I've asked hundreds of thousands of women this question. I'll say, how many of you, dear sisters, would like to be married to a man who cannot say no to his sexual desires? Never has a hand gone up. Women intuit this right away. They know that if they're with a man who cannot say no to his sexual desires, then his yes is emptied of its meaning. And the woman intuits that she then, if the man cannot say no to his desires, she then becomes really just an outlet for him to indulge in his uncontrollable desires. And rightly so, no woman wants to be treated that way. When she's in touch with her heart of hearts, no woman wants to be treated that way. <clears throat> and I can tell <clears throat> from your own embrace of the church's teaching, at least you have some understanding of this, and certainly you don't want to be treated that way. All of that said, let me also show some compassion and understanding for what your husband's going through, because I'm a man, and I know what it's like when you and I, Wendy, have had times of extended abstinence. Mm -hmm. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's not uh, just some skip through the park and delightful. There is a sacrifice required. There is a struggle involved. But the struggle is precisely the struggle against concupiscence, right? There is no circumstance. You know, some people will say that, oh, the church's teaching against contraception prevents us from expressing our love. No, no, it does not. In fact, it is the, precisely the call to express your love, right? But love, what is love, right? Love demands a willingness to choose the true, the good, and the beautiful, even if it costs me, even if it demands sacrifice, even if it demands self-denial, right? And love will always involve some element of sacrifice, some element of self-denial. When a man or a woman is saying, I wish we could just contracept so that we could express our love for each other, what they're really saying, whether they know it or not, is the demands of love I'm finding too difficult right now, and I wish that I could just, with a free conscience, rob the sexual act of its true dignity and meaning so that I wouldn't have to struggle against my sexual desires that are demanding of me some kind of release. But when a husband and a wife engage in an act of sexual union that is just an indulgence of a desire for release, the end result is we end up using one another rather than loving one another. If we cannot say no to our sexual desires, our yes means nothing. Why do we spay and neuter our dogs and cats? Why don't we just ask them to abstain? Well, it's pretty evident that they can't abstain. And this brings up precisely the difference between human beings and animals. Freedom. Freedom. 
Why did God give us freedom? God gave us freedom as the capacity to love. And if we choose to engage in the sexual act as a husband and a wife, then we must engage in it as God created it to be. If we, if we engage in it and then rob it of its procreative potential, it's no longer the marital embrace. It's no longer the true self-giving of a husband and a wife to each other. So in those situations where you have a serious reason to avoid a child, and it sounds like you do, in those situations, the loving thing to do is to abstain from that act which brings children into being. Will that demand struggle? Will that demand sacrifice? Will that demand self-denial? Yes. But love is not afraid of those things. Love demands those things. Love is those things. Those things are part and parcel of learning what it means to love. Again, I say that with compassion for your husband, with understanding, because I'm a man too, and I know what the struggle involves, but I can also speak to the rich, and I mean rich reward of, of, of self-mastery, not that I'm perfect at it, but inasmuch as this grace has been granted in my life, um, I, can, I can attest to the rich reward of being able to say, Wendy, I love your body. I love my body. I love the way God made your body. I love the way God made my body. And I love the fact that if we had sexual intercourse tonight, you could get pregnant. That's awesome. I think that's awesome. But we have a good reason for you not to get pregnant. So out of love for you, out of love for me, out of honoring the meaning of our union, out of reverence for God and the way he made us, we're not going to engage in sexual intercourse tonight. That is an act of love. Every married couple knows, every married couple knows that oftentimes in married life, love demands abstaining. There are many, many occasions where a husband and a wife might want to renew their marital commitment through sexual intercourse. But love demands they abstain. You know, maybe one of you is sick. Uh, maybe, maybe it's after childbirth. Love demands abstinence in these situations. And if you can't abstain, your love is called into question. Uh, I often jokingly say, maybe you're at the in-laws and there are thin walls. Uh, love might demand abstinence in that situation. Maybe you're in a public place. Love would demand abstinence. And maybe you have a serious reason not to bring another child into the world, and today's a peak fertile day. Love demands abstinence, and if you can't abstain, your love is called into question. All of that is just to say, that's the background of the church's teaching here. It's not trying to keep you from having a, a, a good time or a romantic night with your husband. It's, it's an invitation to the, to the authenticity of love. What can you do for your husband there to bring him along, to help him along? You can pray for him. You can offer your suffering for him. Number two, I hope he would be open to this. You could study together the church's teaching. And I would, I would encourage you, and if, if I'm not trying to sell my own books here as if I, I, I need your money or something, but I wrote a book called Good News About Sex and Marriage that will take you step by step through the church's teaching. If you don't have the money for it, I think it's, what, 15 bucks or something, uh, send us a, a message and we'll get it to you for free. Um, 
but please, uh, I encourage you, I strongly encourage you, invite your husband to read that book with you. Um, with patience, with understanding, you can walk with your husband uh, into a place of a, a richer understanding. If there's an obstinance there, and it, it sounds like, at least from the way your, your question was worded, I think there's hope there that your husband could be open. If there's obstinance there, all you can really do is intercede. W Wendy, what are your thoughts? I, I better keep it there because I'm going to just keep having sounds come out of my mouth and saying things. <laughs> <laughs> my love. Yes. It is a gift to hear you just explaining different aspects of this situation and the wisdom you've gained from um, many years of ministering to couples in these situations. So please don't question that. Yeah, That's been a gift. Thanks. And I, I just find myself also, as you are, sympathizing with the challenges of this time. And Ava, um, one of the things I really related to was when you said we're both exhausted and fear of getting pregnant at this stage of life is very big. I just want to sit with that for a moment because I don't want you to think there's something weird about that. Like yeah. that is normal and that is okay. And let the Lord say that to you, not just me, a podcast lady, but let the Lord, let his mother smile upon you and hear them saying, it's okay that you're tired and it's okay that you're afraid. Like any place in you that feels ashamed of that, let the Lord's heart of love and mercy just take away any shame that you might feel about that and trust like it's really okay. You two are pouring yourselves out in the challenges with small children are great and physically and mentally taxing and you're doing a beautiful work that the Lord has called you to by virtue of your marriage and the gift of these children. So to acknowledge that it's difficult and cry out to him for grace and help in this mission that he's given you is is good. And that that's the beginning place of your own prayer. And any action that we recommend beyond that should really begin with that sincere, heartfelt prayer of just revealing your own struggles to the Lord. So I, that's what I first want to encourage. And then um, just to say, there are many, many ways that different uh, relationships process this kind of time. But it could seem to some listeners who maybe aren't very familiar with the church's teaching on contraception, that this is sort of evidence, her saying that they're exhausted and afraid, sort of evidence that we, the Catholic Church is somehow unkind to couples or making life too difficult. And I just want to speak to you that the Lord desires our good with everything in him. Why did he, who is God, become man? Why would he subject himself to this if not for the sake of our good? And his desire for our good is so great that he clearly by his life and his suffering knows that good can come through suffering and often does. So this time that this time in life does involve some suffering is not a sign that it's a bad time. Amen. Amen. In fact, it's a sign of great openness to grace. It's also a time of 
vulnerability to attacks on your marriage. So I just want to say that, that in, in your prayer and your honest opening your heart with your um, just the challenges of this time, I also invite you to pray for protection for your marriage and and pray for that not only in your kind of regular prayer, but in conversations that you feel are not going well. That's a very important time to pray for protection, that 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 the Lord's grace, that the inspirations of the Spirit would triumph in your conversations and interactions. So I encourage that. I encourage you to find ways both to express your love to your husband and also to let him know how he can show love to you. Because as Christopher was saying, the desire for marital union is a physical and natural desire, but we are called in marriage to express a profound love for one another. And if that love can't be expressed that way, we have to discover how to express it. And so that communication about how to express your love is so important. And I just want to let you know, you can't know the answers to things you haven't asked, both of the Lord and one another, but it's a step-by-step process that will bring about great fruit for you. You know, Wendy, you and I have this pattern that we've developed doing all these podcasts where I first kind of give my the theological answer and then you you yeah. give your very heartfelt I uh, pastoral I mean not that my answer is not pastoral but I think our listeners know we we have this pattern you you approach it from such a beautiful place in your heart entering into the hearts of the the questioners and I, I was thinking in this situation it's maybe a a bummer that I went first because I think she should have heard what you said first. <laughs> and then my answer maybe would have made more sense. I want to share just briefly an experience from our own marriage where we, we I won't get into all the details here, but we had a, a time in our marriage where we had to abs- abstain for a, a long time, like over a year. And that was daunting at first. But both Wendy and I, we, we look back at that time as a time of profound grace. Yes. We, we knew we had serious reasons to abstain. Uh, that was the loving and right thing to do. And those reasons lasted for over a year. And during that time, we, because of these circumstances, we were compelled to learn how to express our love for one another without without intercourse. And that opened a world to us of tenderness and affection and closeness. And it, it, it brought about a deeper mastery of, of our bodies, of our desires. It brought about a deeper intimacy, a deeper union of our hearts, uh, and, and learning ways to express affection that do not lead to sexual climax, but are nonetheless tender and close and intimate and beautiful and marital, that was a time of tremendous grace. That was 15 years ago or whatever it was, and we've taken those graces with us for the last however many years it's been. So don't be afraid of these challenges. These challenges, embraced with God's grace, bear tremendous, tremendous fruit. Amen. Our next question is from a listener named Ben. Hello, Ben. 
I have a question about the language of bride in the Bible. Can you share about how bride is represented as the church throughout Scripture and how the early church fathers affirmed this marital language? Sometimes on the college campus, I'm approached by people who believe in God the Father and God the Mother. And they reference the book of Revelation with the woman crowned with 12 stars, as well as the reference to the spirit and the bride as proof of God the Mother. As Catholics, we know about Mary as spouse of the Holy Spirit and the woman crowned with 12 stars. We also know that God is neither male nor female, but he reveals himself as father and that we together as male and female reflect who God is. Do you have any advice on how I can defend the Catholic teaching of bride as a reference to the church? Bless you, Ben. Uh, to give an adequate answer to your question would be a doctoral dissertation which I don't have time to write on this podcast, although I think I could, <laughs> and I would love to, to address this at length. Uh, I, I'm just going to point you in certain directions here. The imagery of the church as the bride is the fulfillment of the image of Israel in the Old Testament as the bride, right? Your maker will marry you. Uh, comes from the Old Testament. I believe that's uh, Ezekiel or Isaiah. I always get those two mixed up. And then there's the, the prophet Hosea. Uh, I will betroth you to me forever. In truth, in fidelity, I will take you as my bride, right? So that's Israel. And Israel is fulfilled in the New Testament in the church. And Mary is the embodiment of Israel. She is also the embodiment of the church. This whole mystery of male and female and the transcendent mystery it reveals is precisely the difference between the creator and the creature, right? And the creator and the creature relationship is one of life-giving communion. But the origin of the life comes from God. God is the giver of life, right? Uh, St. John says in the New Testament, this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us. The very nature of the creator-creature relationship is that the creator is the Lord and giver of life, and the creature is the one who receives that life. This mystery, an analogy of it, is inscribed precisely in the sexual difference itself. It is the male who gives the seed of life. It is the woman who opens to receive and conceive life within her. That giving and receiving, that receiving and giving, is a sign that God wrote right into our humanity of his relationship with us. That comes out throughout the Old Testament when we read about God as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride, and it's fulfilled in the New Testament through Christ, who comes in male flesh. Why? Because male flesh is the icon of God's desire to enter his creation and to fill his creature with divine life. The female body is the icon of creation's desire to be filled with all the fullness of the living God. All of this is fulfilled in pregnant Mary, 
because pregnant Mary reveals God's desire to enter his creation, right? God himself has entered the mystery of Mary, right? And pregnant Mary reveals creation's desire to be filled with all the full fullness of God. The fulfillment of the spousal mystery happens in the womb of Mary. Mm. The saints take it even deeper. St. Augustine, for example, says that the ultimate marriage is precisely the marriage of the divine and human natures in the person of Christ. And that marriage of the divine and human natures in the very person of Christ was consummated in what St. Augustine calls the bridal chamber of Mary's womb. So maleness and femaleness reveal profound spiritual and divine mysteries, hence the expression theology of the body. Now it is true that God, we can use motherly characteristics to describe God. Uh, will a mother forget her infant? Even if she forgets, I will never forget you, right? That's the Lord speaking. So you can read this right in the Catechism. There are motherly qualities, absolutely, that we can refer to God. But God's relationship to us is revealed as father and bridegroom. Why? Because if God were mother and bride, it flips the whole relationship in terms of the symbolism of male and female, it flips the whole relationship upside down. We are not God. We are, we are not our own gods. The very nature of the creature is that of receiving the gift of life from the Creator, right? And, and this is properly symbolized by the reality of the realities of the male body. It doesn't mean the man is divine uh, or something, but rather that the male body is the proper sign of the divine reality. The female body is the proper sign of the human, the creaturely reality. So John Paul II says, woman is the model of the whole human race. She reveals to all of us, both men and women, the essence of our humanity, because the essence of our humanity is to open to divine love, receive divine love, conceive divine love, and bear it forth. That's the theology of a woman's body. Those who would refer to the woman clothed with the sun as an image of the divinity itself uh, are failing to just interpret the Bible correctly. The divinity in that whole imagery from the book of Revelations is within her womb, right? The divinity is not a mother. The divinity is God the Father who has eternally generated his Son to share with his Son the love of the Holy Spirit. The woman in the book of Revelations, Revelations 12, from the earliest days of the church, we've, the church has always understood this as an image of the church. Revelations 12, the woman clothed the Son is an image of the church, and the church is embodied in Mary. As for the Spirit and the bride, say, come Lord Jesus, well, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the bride is the church embodied in Mary, and what we have at the very end of the Bible, the Spirit and the bride say, come, is yet another biblical echoing, if you will, 
of the mystery of the incarnation. When the bride, the fulfillment of Israel, the fulfillment of the church, Mary says to the angel Gabriel, how will I conceive God's son? By the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ will come in your womb. The spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit here, far from being an image of the mother, is in fact, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Mary is an image of the very seed of the Father, the life-giving power of God. That's the symbol of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, rather, we could say, is the invisible, eternal, immortal seed of God. Hmm. This is how, and, and I'm only doing a, a, a sketch here. Again, it could be a doctoral dissertation. But this is how we are in sketch form, in outline form at least, this is how we are to understand the male and female difference and how they, how and what they properly symbolize. Mm. What is your sense? I'm going to just throw a question at you. Uh, this is from I not think you have from to a submit listener. It. No, no, no. I'm I'm sorry. Why I have don't a... you send it? Send it to the through the website, <laughs> and then you can field it. And if you decide to use it on the podcast, then I'll answer it. How about that? This is the host's prerogative. (laughs) I'm asking a question. What do you think is behind the desire to say there is God the mother? What do you think is the motivation there? Yes, I, I think, well, it could be various things. You could be coming at this from all kinds of angles. Number one, it's a proper desire, although misguided conclusion, it's a proper desire to recognize the dignity of the feminine. Mm-hmm. And the dignity of the feminine is revealed in Mary, mm. right? The dignity of the feminine, the feminine is properly the sign of creatureliness, right? That does not mean I'm less of a creature as a male. I'm just as much a creature as you are a creature, Wendy. Yes. But my body tells a different story in the analogy of the creator and the creature, my my body is the icon of God's desire to enter his creation mm. and, and fill it with divine life. Mm-hmm. Your body is the sign of all of creation's desire to be filled with that divine mm-hmm. life. One of the reasons we reject this notion of God as father and maybe take comfort in this notion of God as mother is because we have embraced a lie about who God is. The lie that the serpent told the woman in the book of Genesis, and why why did he tell the woman this lie? Precisely because she is the symbol of the whole of humanity. Mm. We have to learn how to read God's sign language. God speaks to us in sign language, and the main sign he has given us is the human body, male and female. The sign, the symbol of of the serpent approaching the woman is that the serpent wants to convince the whole human race that God is a tyrant, that God wants to enslave us, that Mm. God is not a loving father who wants to provide for us. He's not a loving bridegroom who wants to fill us with his own life. Uh, I'm going to spell this word just because I hate this word, but this is what the serpent wants the whole human race to think of God. He's not a loving bridegroom. He is an R-A-P-I-S-T. That's what Satan wants us to think. And if that is true, that God is going to dominate us, control us, violate us as creatures, 
then we have to close ourselves off in order to protect our own dignity. And when we live in that paradigm that God is domineering, tyrant, and R-A-P-I-S-T, then the thought of being feminine, the thought of being open, the thought of being vulnerable to that, forget that, no flipping way. So we reject this God that we have wrongly come to conceive as domineering and tyrannical. When in truth, look at look who is Christ? What does Christ do? What is his mission? His mission is to reveal the true nature and character of God. And what does he do? He says, you think God is a tyrant? I will let you tyrannize me to demonstrate that I have no desire to tyrannize you. You think God would enslave you if you gave him the chance? I will take the form of a slave. I've not come to enslave you. I've come to set you free. You think God would try to crush you and snuff you out if you gave him the chance? I'll let you crush me and snuff me out to demonstrate I have no desire to do that to you. You think God would whip your back if you gave him the chance? I will let you whip my back to demonstrate to you that God has no desire to whip yours. Stop persisting in this lie that God is a tyrant, that God is an R-A-P-I-S-T. This is my body given up for you unto death to reveal to you it is safe, it is okay to be a creature because your Creator loves you. Translated into these symbols, we would say it this way, it is okay for the creature to be bride. It is safe to be feminine. It is safe to be hmm. open to me. I will not dominate you. I will not control you. I will not manipulate you. I will not R-A-P-E you. This is my body given up for you. That is the true revelation of the masculine right there. Hmm. And the true revelation of the feminine in is recognizing that love and saying, that's what I desire. I open. Let it be done to me according to your word. Thank you for taking my question. I, I I'm felt happy to like take your question. Sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to offer something, I, sometimes I feel uh, like, oh, but what I actually have to offer is I'm, ha I'm having a question myself. So thank <laughs> you for taking that. Because I, I sense that, you know, this questioner, Ben, you know, is encountering people who are calling this bride an image of God, the mother, for a reason. And I, I see my own ignorance where I don't even know what their reason is. So I think that was really helpful to me just to get at some of the the imbalance or confusion or woundedness that can be behind that desire to see God yeah. that way. So thank it's you. It's understandable that it, it's hard for many people, especially when we've had fathers who have abandoned us, fathers who've abused us, can be very difficult to recognize God as Father. But the healing of that wound will never come from rejecting God as Father or calling Him Mother. It will rather come from recognizing the true character of God as Father. Because what we're doing when we say, I don't want to call God Father because I had an abusive father, is we're actually projecting our own abusive experiences back onto God, when in fact we need to go the other direction, not measure God based on the standard of our own broken fathers. We have to measure our broken fathers 
on the true standard of who God really is. And part of who God is, a substantial part of who God is, is mercy. And we have to learn how to show that mercy to our fathers who have wounded us. Mm. That's the true path. And maybe, Wendy, for the sake of time and the way we try to keep our podcast not too long, uh, maybe we should just take your impromptu question as question number three oh, for okay. today. Okay. Does that sound good? Sure. I hope that was a blessing to everybody. If you've been blessed by what we shared today, would you please hit that share button and help us spread this podcast to a, a wider audience mm-hmm. and keep the questions coming. Please. We're so grateful that you are part of this with us. And Wendy, I'm going to toss it to you. Let's flip it around mm. this time. All of you, every one of you, is an indispensable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.